The One Hot Minute podcast is brought to you by The Warehouse, who believe that saving the planet shouldn't cost the earth. Join them on their journey in making the sustainable affordable. The Hot Minute Podcast from Stuff's Forever Project. When you boil it down, the climate crisis is all about energy, where it comes from, how we use it, and where the pollution from it ends up. Humans have come up with an amazing array of cool things to do with energy. Moving people from place to place, heating things up, cooling things down, making stuff, feeding ourselves more cheaply. But for the past few centuries, we've produced a lot of energy by burning fossil fuels. If we're going to get the climate crisis back under control, we need to get a lot smarter about where our energy comes from and what we do with it next. And in New Zealand, we've got some options that other countries don't have. Because right down at the bottom of the South Island, at Tiwai Point, there's an aluminium smelter that for decades has been gobbling up vast amounts of lovely climate-friendly hydroelectricity generated at the Manapoli power station. That smelter is looking likely to close, and when it does, New Zealand needs to figure out what it might do with all the electricity the smelter no longer needs. We could build new power lines and ship it all up to the rest of the country to power our laptops and our heat pumps, but the building cost of that would be vast, and we'd also waste a lot of the energy en route because of transmission losses. There are, however, some other rather interesting options. I'm Eloise Gibson, Stuff's Climate Change Editor, and you're listening to the One Hot Minute podcast. Here's how it works. In Stuff's online video series, One Hot Minute, we give each guest just 60 seconds to tell their climate change story. And then in this podcast, we dig a bit deeper into what they said in that video. So today's guest is Nicola Gaston. She's an associate professor in Auckland University's physics department, as well as being co-director of the McDiamond Institute for Advanced Materials and Nanotechnology. It's fair to say she knows a lot about energy, about carbon, about electricity, and the ways that we can use those things. One of the big ideas in Nicola's One Hot Minute was that we use the TY Point hydropower to make something called green hydrogen, and then use that to fuel a new fleet of trains. So I started by asking her this. What makes hydrogen green? You're still burning something, right? You are. Um, So when people talk about green hydrogen, they're talking about where it's produced from. Um, And so you can get hydrogen as a byproduct from some fossil fuel processes. And that would suggest that the hydrogen's not green in origin. Is that what we call brown hydrogen? So there's brown hydrogen, yeah. Uh, And so green hydrogen is really the the ideal thing. So something that's produced without any uh, carbon emissions. So how would we make it using hydroelectricity? Most people know that water is made of H2O, so two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom in every molecule of water. And it's a relatively simple process to break that water molecule into different pieces. And effectively, all we need is energy to break those chemical bonds. So the idea is we would use the extra electricity from Manapodi, which is now going to TY, to break apart these into something we can use as a fuel. Absolutely. Sure. And so the thing that's really cool 
once you've produced hydrogen is that it works as a fuel. When you're burning a fossil fuel, you produce CO2 because you've got carbon in there. But if you burn hydrogen as your fuel, you're really just combining that hydrogen with oxygen again, and so you end up with nothing but water. And so for that reason, it's the perfect carbon zero fuel. So dumb question, but you talked about trains. Can we just plonk hydrogen fuel into things that run on fossil fuel at the moment and they'll go? Not exactly. You do need the engine to be designed to run on hydrogen. And then there are smarter ways of doing that. So you can have a combustion engine that runs on hydrogen. That's not super efficient. And so people make what are called fuel cells, uh, which combine the hydrogen with oxygen in more efficient ways. But in theory, we can do that. Absolutely. You can make an engine that works. And there are hydrogen powered trains Mm. running currently in Germany. They'll run for a thousand kilometres on one tank of hydrogen fuel. And they're perfect for places where you don't have the railways already electrified. So the other thing you talked about in your One Hot Minute video is using the electricity to make our silica into solar panels. Talk us through that. Okay, so that's a little bit more out there. I think, you know, hydrogen is such an easy process to think about. And I hadn't really thought about the silicon idea until came to my attention that this was actually a real thing and that there is uh, silica down in Southland and people have talked about doing this. Yeah, it is. It's basically silicon, um, which is what you want for the solar cell. We have the hydroelectricity from Manapodi Dam. We have a bunch of sand in the South Island. We're going to use the energy to melt it into something we want? <laughs> uh, yeah, so so there's uh, there are a number of steps in the purifying of the silica, so um, we don't need to go through them all, I think, but first of all, you want to get some of that oxygen out and make something that's primarily silicon, mm-hmm. but then you want to get it into a high-quality form, so a very right. strongly purified form suitable for solar cells. And so you actually do that in, in multiple steps. And... One of the really nice things about this is, um, I don't know if you remember, not so long ago there was a, a documentary that came out by Michael Moore about the, the sort of embedded carbon cost of a lot of green technologies. Mm. And that's true, right? Whenever we make something like a silicon solar cell, it takes energy to make it. The issue is that right now we're still running with fossil fuels being available to us and we have to make choices about what we do mm. with those fossil fuels that are a necessary part of our energy system right now. And so one of the smartest things I can think of us doing with that is using that energy to create new forms of energy production, so things like solar cell materials, so that then we're out of that trap. Because currently we're in a we're in a, a circular argument, I think. So I want to bring you back to TY. You've got other ideas for using that power where it is made. Mm. You've talked about large-scale batteries Mm -hmm. or using it to power a green data Mm centre. Super quickly, how would those work? Uh, Well, a green data centre would be really simple. It would just be the kind of um, computational facility that we have um, with big server farms based overseas. So like a Microsoft or a Google. Exactly. And one of the energy problems associated with that is that the carbon cost associated with computing or ICT more generally is increasing really, really rapidly. Just think about everybody doing stuff on their phones all the time. And the carbon cost of that pre-COVID was more than air travel. Hmm. And so it's one of these things about 
where our carbon usage is going um, because everybody worries about the battery on their phone. But that's not the energy cost that we're actually talking about. It's whenever you Google something on your phone, that triggers a server somewhere overseas, usually, sure. to do some processing, to move some electrons around to find some information for you. So every time those en- electrons move around, they generate heat. So first of all, the energy that you put in isn't used 100 efficiently because of the resistance caused by the electrons moving. And then secondly, because it generates heat and then the transistors stop working, if they get too hot, you have to cool the whole thing down. So there's an energy wastage associated with that. Um, And so there are types of materials that are being studied in order to try to change the way that we do computation. So thinking of superconductors where the electrons don't have that same resistance. That's that's also a longer term solution. And right now, if we can make sure at least that the electricity used to run those data centres is not creating a carbon problem, so if we're using renewable energy for data centres, then that's already a huge step forward in just addressing the, the carbon issue itself. Realistically, is anyone going to pick up on these cool ideas? Because they sound amazing, but Mm. the status quo is a strong force, isn't it? Mm. Is anyone going to put these into practice? I think something is going to have to happen. You know, I just look at the quantity of electricity that we have. It's more than half what Auckland uses. This is just from TY. This is just TY. Mm. It's our second biggest city in terms of its electricity use. Um, Bigger than Wellington, bigger than Christchurch, almost twice as much as either of those. And so the scale of that energy, you know, something is going to need to be done. So either it's transmission lines, um, and that's the obvious thing that the government could easily do. Just Um, build a big cable and bring it all the way to Auckland. It's not so much the logistics of building the cable even that's difficult, and it's not so much the cost. What makes that the easy thing for government to do is that it's obviously the business of government to make sure that big infrastructural projects like that happen. And so when you're talking about instead producing hydrogen or particularly manufacturing for export, it's not so clear that those are government roles. So that makes me wonder, is the government the right person to be making this call or should private enterprise be getting in and putting some money in? Well, I think there has to be a a conversation. But the problem is that if a government decision to build or not build transmission is sort of the first thing that needs to be decided and made clear, you know, Private business can't really step in until there's a strategy laid out by government for what's going to happen. So I guess what I I would like to see is some sort of system set up with the provision for a number of green tech companies to be able to pilot processes at TY using this electricity in a sensible way. And and silicon's maybe one example where some of the smelter might be able to be repurposed for different metal production or metals for particular applications. And so thinking a little bit in advance and talking to people now about, you know, what are the technologies that could be piloted. Is anyone saying this to the government? Are you? Uh, Yes, in a sense. Um, I mean, I'm saying it publicly uh, Mm. because I'm not... Saying it twice right now. I'm I'm not so strongly invested in any one of these technologies being taken up. But you're saying Um, we need a plan. I'm saying we need a plan. I'm saying the science is there. I think that's that's where I can come from, from my um, day Mm. job. I can look around and I can see that the science is there. Uh, that other countries have built some of these types of infrastructure. So, you know, the hydrogen uh, powered trains in Germany was 
2018, I think they started running. Mm. So these things are doable, um, but they are at the scale simply because of the quantum of energy, electricity down at, at, at TY. They're at the scale that the government needs to set a strategy. But it's very clear that these are the kinds of technologies that are looking for places to be piloted. They're the kind of technologies that need to be viewed as infrastructure for a country because if you're putting technology in place that's going to replace fossil fuels, for example, and you think of the way we use transport with all the, the, the fueling stations across the country, mm. you know, there's, there's an infrastructural barrier to changing to any other kind of sure. way of doing things. And so there does need to be, you know, a strategy around what that looks like. Someone needs to, to put on their, their big person pants and make some calls. Yes, absolutely. Uh, your answers are making me wonder, you know, to a large extent, clever human technology has got us into the climate crisis, right? Uh, the fossil fuels that we use, our petrol cars, the things that make us comfortable now have created a crisis. You're suggesting that other clever human technologies could get us out. Does that make you a techno-optimist? Oh, in some ways, but not entirely. I don't think any of this happens on its own or inevitably. I think people have to look at the problem um, and figure out what solutions they see as being most appropriate, most accessible, uh, most palatable. And so... Are you a people optimist? I'm sometimes a people optimist. I, I vary from day to day, Eloise. But Don't no, we all I'd, I'd, like to, <laughs> I'd like to think I am. Um, and I think, you know, science in a way, you know, we wouldn't do it if we didn't think that there was a way for it to be useful eventually and that it does matter. Uh, but I certainly don't think that it is just going to naturally happen because the technology is there and therefore people must use it. Sure. But I think we have to have a conversation as a society about how we fix things. And I see my job and the science that we do in the Institute as being to tell people that these things exist and say, look, these are decisions that we can actually make as a country, but they probably do need to be national scale conversations. I want to talk to you about the Institute um, in a minute. but On to the quiz. Question number one. Over a 20-year period, how much more heat does a molecule of methane trap in the atmosphere than a single molecule of carbon dioxide? 10, 34 or 84? I have no idea. I'm going to go with 34 because it's the middle answer. I was hoping you would because it gives me an opportunity to say many people might be thinking 34. So what happens when, as you probably know, New Zealand reports its emissions to the UN every year. We have to convert everything into carbon dioxide equivalents. So we've just got one unit that we're representing everything in. About 30 is the conversion over 100 years. But over short time periods, methane is more potent than that. So more like 84. Uh, but over very long time periods, it's, it's smaller because it disappears. Carbon dioxide, of course, hangs around basically forever, stuck with it um, for eternity. I did know there was a timescale problem. I just, yeah, didn't know how that converted. It is a matter of, yeah. excuse the pun, heated debate in New yes. Zealand. Whether 100 years is the appropriate time, whether we should be looking shorter, longer, um, but of course, you know, no. everyone who produces a particular gas has an investment in measuring it in the way that, that makes them look good. The phrasing I like around CO2 is that it's where carbon goes to die. <laughs> but um, I like to think that with a bit of chemistry, we can revive some of it. Fix I like some of that, that idea. Hmm. Okay, question number two. 
recent research has suggested that the Antarctic ice shelves might collapse at how many degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average? So pre-industrial average being what the climate was doing before humans started pumping a whole lot of carbon dioxide into it. How many degrees? I'm going to go with something like four degrees. I wish it was four. Unfortunately, it's more like two, apparently. So New Zealanders, including uh, some scientists at Victoria University, GNS Science and others, they have contributed to this finding that um, based on looking way, way, way into the past, we might lose not the whole of the ice in Antarctica, but the shells that jut out into the ocean because they are being melted from the bottom and the top and they might go at about two, which makes meeting the Paris Agreement temperature targets, which is between 1.5 and 2, very important. Question number three. Please listen to this clip. Do you know who's singing? Sounds like Tom York, but... Okay. Very well done, <laughs> I got Nicola one Gaston. <laughs> one out of three. And the we're non-science gonna, question. We're gonna, <laughs> well, they say scientists are very specialised. You know, they're as useless as the rest of us outside of their, their little field. I'm sure that's actually not true. Uh, yes, that is Tom York, and he has written climate change-themed songs a number of times. So... Uh, with his band Radiohead and his 2006 solo album The Eraser. That song is called And It Rained All Night and it addresses the fear of cataclysmic flooding. The lyrics, in case you missed them, were The tick-tock tick of a ticking time bomb, 50 feet of concrete underground, one little leak becomes a lake. Might be talking about Manapori. It sounds a lot like Manapori. Can I provide a little bit of trivia in response? Please do. So I didn't realised this till this morning and I was um, just reading a little bit about Manapuri on my way here. And it is exactly 51 years to the day, today, since they turned the water on. Nicola, you're a material scientist. Some people will be listening and thinking, what's material science got to do with climate change? But probably even more people will be thinking... What even is material science? Mm. Give us a super quick 101 on that. Super quick 101. Um, Everything is materials. Um, I've come to this perspective. I guess I I studied chemistry and physics, and so I know a fair amount of chemistry and I know a certain amount of physics. Um, And chemistry is sort of about stuff, and physics is about, well, a lot of it's about energy, but also how you do stuff with stuff. And so, so it's doing stuff with stuff. Doing stuff with stuff is actually a pretty good summary of material science. And I think one of the key problems that we have come to realise is that all stuff on this planet exists in finite quantities. Um, I think the only appreciable element that has increased, increased over time is iridium because it falls out of the sky and asteroids mm. occasionally. And for some elements, we're realising pretty quickly as we use them for technologies, things like lithium and your batteries and your mm. cell phone. A platinum's another good example. It's a really useful catalyst and so the kind of thing that you might use to make hydrogen from water. These materials are really key to how we make these processes efficient. So you think about even photosynthesis in a little plant where it takes the energy from the sun and it uses that to, to do stuff with CO2 and to grow. 
we kind of need materials that help us mimic those kinds of processes. Um, you so know? we're putting all this brain power into just trying to be as efficient as a plant, basically. Well, yeah, the bezel or, or, on my windowsill is already there. <laughs> In a way, but plants had a long time to learn how to do this. <laughs> we're trying to figure it out. Um, but we've, yeah, we're, we're getting much better at it. And so that's part of what material science is. Just quickly, nanoscience, mm. my best stab at it is studying really teeny tiny snuff and mm. trying to do useful things with teeny tiny stuff. Yeah. Do better than that, please. <laughs> yeah, so so teeny tiny stuff is right, but what's important about the fact that it's teeny tiny stuff is that it's too small for us for the most part to, you know, pick up and move about and manipulate using our hands or even devices. And so nano stuff is often so small that the the way the molecules or the nanoparticles interact themselves naturally is what controls the type of material that gets made out of that um, those nanoparticles. And so we talk about self-assembly, which is a really cool thing. So where you've got atoms and you make a material out of the atoms, the atoms figure out how they want to bind to each other because they find the lowest energy configuration. If you make nanoparticles and you let them interact with each other, they can also create a material by interacting with each other, finding out the, the most natural configuration. Now, the really cool thing about that is that we're moving in the direction of reconfigurable materials. So we're in response to temperature or pressure, or something like pH, you can persuade the material to reconfigure itself. And the really so cool like thing... So you put the ingredients in the soup, yep. and the soup cooks Organizes itself into itself. something delicious. Yep. Which is what biological molecules do, sure. effectively. And so we're trying to learn ways of doing that, because the idea would be that then you can make materials that are reconfigurable by design, which is to say recyclable. I can see the use of that from an environmental perspective. What about climate change specifically? Oh, you just talked about um, um, yeah, EV so, batteries or yeah. photovoltaic panels. Yeah, so so batteries, I suppose, um, one of the issues there is is more to do about the availability of the particular materials that we use in in the battery. So again, this this idea of material sustainability, the fact that we've got limited quantities of particular things on the planet, but that if we combine a couple of different elements that might be more abundant in the right kind of structure, we might be able to mimic the properties of one of these less abundant elements. Carbon, funnily enough, is actually something that you can combine with cheap metals like nickel to create a material that might behave a little bit like platinum, which is really expensive, but a really good catalyst. So that's sort of one of the driving purposes of material science, to make things that, that work for the technologies that we need, but using elements that might be more available, cheaper, less toxic, uh, more environmentally friendly. I promised we were going to talk about the McDiamond Institute. I hope I'm saying that right. I get the press releases, I've had a flick through your most recent annual report, and I get the sense over the last few years that there has been a pivot to solving the climate crisis. Mm. Is that right? It's right. Um, it was sort of a very natural pivot because it was the kind of thing that a lot of people were working on anyway, but under this banner of material science and nanotechnology. As in they were doing things that just happened to be useful yeah. for yeah. So, energy. So, so solar cells, for example, sure. people working on um, in particular organic um, photovoltaics and batteries. You know, It's a key material science problem. Catalysts for fuel cells, a key material science problem. And so, yeah, it, it really just came about because we, we all got together in a room one day and we were sort of talking about, well, what do we do? How should we talk about material science for the public? Uh, one of my colleagues wrote down a whole lot of stuff that everybody was saying and then 
sent me this document. It might have been 10 pages or something. I looked at it and I thought, oh, I have to summarise this somehow. And I did one of those stupid word cloud things that you can generate online with this 10-page document. And it just popped up and it had land, air, water, sustainability, energy. Those were the the big words that popped out of this word cloud. You've written before about how a century ago uh, the great German physicist Max Planck was looking for ways to make a better light bulb and discovered quantum physics. I'm sure I have greatly oversimplified what actually happened there. That's pretty much right. (laughs) Do you think that you might stumble across some other awesome scientific breakthrough trying to solve climate change? Yeah. I mean, already with the types of research we do, at the moment, there's sort of three streams. So one is very climate change specific around energy, and one is very much around this idea of reconfigurable materials. And the other one is much more around computing, so trying to make computers that need less energy to work well or to be efficient. But what we tend to see is that somebody will be working on one of these ideas, and then they'll talk to somebody working on one of the other types of ideas, and they'll go, oh, well, maybe the material I'm using over here would actually be what you need to solve that problem over there. And so there's a lot of synergy that happens between these different kinds of um, applications because we're all working on the same types of materials or we're all trying to answer the same questions about how you, I don't know, I mean, I'm a theorist, so I like to think of it as persuade the atoms to do what you want to do. <laughs> that's you speak pretty to much them very, the, very yes, nicely. Yes, that's pretty much it. Uh, look, Nicola Gaston, thank you so much for coming on the One Hot Minute podcast. We really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been lovely to chat. And we hope that some of these ideas will come to fruition. Um, you know, without wanting to pick one, wouldn't it be cool to see some new thinking? It would be great to see any of these things um, being explored. And and I think long term, there's really um, the potential for something amazing to happen. So that's it for this time. Thanks for listening to the One Hot Minute podcast. Don't forget to also check out the One Hot Minute video series where you can hear Nicola Gaston make her 60-second pitch on the future of TY Point's electricity. There are links on the Stuff homepage and from Play Stuff. If you want to make sure you catch every episode of this podcast, go subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this right now. And if you have a second, give us a quick star rating on Apple Podcasts. We like five stars. Or even leave a review. This episode was produced by Adam Dudding and me, Aloise Gibson. It's part of the Forever Project, Stuff's portfolio of climate change coverage. Thanks to Abigail Doherty, Jason Dorday, Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. More info at stuff.co.nz slash one hot minute. See you next time.